for your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon, and if you're joining us for the first time, we started about two weeks ago in the Song of Solomon. And um, it's, tonight's uh, title is The Bride's Admiration, The Bride's Admiration. We left off last time we were together with the king, that is Solomon, and the Shulamite woman talking to each other. They were telling each other about the beauty that they see in each other. He thinks of her, then she thinks of him, and then she thinks of her, uh, he, she, uh, he thinks of her again. And when he thinks of her, all he can think about is peace. From back in chapter 1, verse 15. When she thinks of Solomon, she's in seventh heaven. Verses 1, 16 through 17. He thinks of her once more, and purity sums up what he sees in her. In chapter 2, verse 2. But first of all, the Shulamite tells Solomon about the problem that she sees, beginning with verse 1. Notice what she says in chapter 2, verse 1. She goes, she's telling Solomon, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. This was her problem. But what was the problem? She could only see herself as a plain, old, common flower that was found in Israel. It's as if she's saying to Solomon, you know, there's really nothing special about me, Solomon. I'm just an ordinary flower. I don't know what you see in me. And you can find them everywhere. She says, I'm just another one of the bunch. But as we all know, common Everyday wildflowers can be very beautiful in the right setting. She was thinking, how could her wonderful king see anything beautiful in her at all? Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 6, 28 and 29, look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. Yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautiful as they are. But then Solomon thinks of her and thinks of purity. Look at verse 2. Now, now Solomon speaks to the Shulamite woman, his love. He says, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. He quickly comforts the Shulamite's heart. When her beloved, Solomon says to her, oh no, you're not just a common ordinary flower. You're not like all the others. You're extraordinary. He says to her, you're a lily among thorns. Now, the name, the name Lily of Palestine was used as the general name of several common plants in that area. It was a plain plant, but it produced a really colorful flower. And the king saw his lover, the Shulamite, as a lily among the thorns. And according to some studies, the Rose of Sharon is one of the most common garden shrubs in the world. The women in Solomon's court with their highbrow attitudes and their luxurious clothing and their overpowering perfumes and their expensive jewelry and so on, they were thorn bushes compared to her. They were tumbleweeds compared to her. They were totally insignificant to Solomon and harmful to him. But the Shulamite woman was as lovely and as, as, and as impressive as the lily with its rich, dark purple flower. And you know what? That's how the Lord Jesus sees us with all of our flaws. He sees us in the world, in this world, as the loveliest of lilies in the midst of a wilderness world 
of, that's, that's full of thorn bushes and tumbleweeds. And even though there's a lot more people in the world that are better educated, more refined, more intelligent, more talented, the Lord sees all of them without Him. He sees all of them apart from Himself as unredeemed and headed for eternal destruction. But man, when He fixes His eyes on us, He sees us dressed in beauty and grace, so infinitely superior to anything that the people of this world can show. He sees us clothed in the elegant luxury of a finished work of grace. And we need to always remember this because that's how Jesus sees us in this world. Verse 3, now the Shulamite replies to Solomon, her beloved. She says, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. The Shulamite, like I said, now responds to her beloved's comforting words. She says about Solomon, you're like the finest apple tree in the orchard, my lover, among other, men, among other young men. You are the finest of them all. She thought about how generous he was because generosity is a characteristic of love. And it finds its greatest pleasure in giving and giving and giving until you have given and there's nothing left. And just like the Shulamite woman, we think of how Jesus has shown his love for us in his giving. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And he gave until he couldn't give. What can you give after you've given your life? For God so loved the world that he gave. John 3, 16. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the world and gave himself for her john 15 13 greater love jesus said has no one than this than to lay down that is give one's life for his friends and paul made that love personal in galatians 2 20 when he said the life which i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me you see love is giving all the world knows is taking love is giving The Shulamite here described her beloved's generosity in a couple of ways. First, she thought about the abundance of a forest by saying to him, my lover is an apple tree. He's the finest in the orchard compared with any of the other men. And she said, all I want is to sit in his shade and to to taste and savor his delicious love. Solomon compared her to a lily among thorns in verse 2, and now she's comparing him to an apple tree among all the other trees of the woods of the forest. Now, an apple tree, it might not be as big and strong as the other trees, but it has its own value. And she pointed out two things about the apple tree. First, she was thankful for its protection. She says, I sat down in his shade with great delight. Just like you'd sit under a nice shady tree to find protection from the hot burning sun on a hot day, she found her protection in her beloved. Now this is a strong suggestion about the role of the male being the protector of the woman. He provides the security of a shelter and a place where she can flourish. Now in this world's idea, and especially with the women's live movement, they would not like this. And I believe that this is God's ordained design. It was considered abnormal if God's divine order for a man to be the protector of the woman was reversed. 
And we have a big role reversal in men and women today. Today we see the reversal of men and women's roles in relationships. But it's not a role that just covers the protection and provision overall and being the overall head of the woman, but also providing emotional and psychological strength to the woman as well. In Ephesians 5, 28 through 29, listen to what Paul said to husbands. And wives, to husbands. He says, he's to, speaking of the husband, he's to love his wife as his own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And yet when Paul said, hey, you know what? Husbands, love your wives like your own bodies. Hey, we, we for the most part, take care of our bodies, don't we, guys? Oh, we take it to the gym. You know, we clean it up. We put on nice clothes and, and wear nice colognes. And, and we take care of ourselves. And Paul says, when you take care of your wife, it's like you're taking care of your own body. Take care of your wife like you take care of your own self. He says, because nobody ever hated his own flesh. He says, but nourishes and cherishes it. These are two special words in Ephesians 5.29. The words nourish and cherish, speaking about the, what, how the man is to take care of his wife. The word nourish means to nurture, to rear. It's translated nurture. It's the care of one's own flesh. It speaks of meeting your wife's material and spiritual needs. Now, to nourish a wife is to provide for her needs, to give her the things that help her to grow and mature in favor with God and man. <clears throat> the word cherish means to heat, to soften by heat, then to keep warm. It's the picture of, of birds covering their young with their feathers. In Deuteronomy 22.6, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, metaphorically, it means to cherish with tender love, to foster with tender care. To cherish your wife is to use tender love and physical affection to give her warmth, comfort, protection, and security. And the, those responsibilities are mostly the husbands and not the wives. As Christ provides for his bride, so the husband provides for his wife and his family. Now, just sitting with him, she says, you know, she, just sitting with him, he's with her and, and that he's near sensing his strength and protection, that just brought her so much joy to her heart. Just being with him, sitting with him, knowing that he's close by. She's, she's sensing his strength and his protection. Man, she's just, she's just full of joy. How we need to do this with our Lord. To just sit with him and enjoy his presence. He's there to protect us from the trials of the day when they weigh heavy on us, when they just seem to be overwhelm us and to wear us out, and when we feel crushed by our circumstances. She was also thankful for his position. Notice she said, I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. The Shulamite felt totally safe with her beloved. She was totally at ease with him. She was totally free from worry. She didn't feel threatened. She didn't feel fearful, worried, or nervous while she was with him. She experienced this with him before they got married. And this, is, this has to start before marriage. And I've said it before, never trust that your future spouse will change after you get married. Remember I said you marry a character. You marry a character. And a lot of times they don't change, whether it's the, the, the husband or wife. There's, they don't change after they get married. 
unless Jesus Christ comes in and convicts and shows where there needs to be change. And then after she describes her beloved's generosity in terms of a force, she then describes him as a feast to the daughters of Jerusalem, which the daughters of Jerusalem were her attendants. Look at verses 4 through 7. It says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up, uh, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. So the Shulamite woman now is, is exhorting and speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem. Again, those were the attendants that took care of her. So the Shulamite woman now speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem. The relationship now between Solomon and the Shulamite, it's picking up steam. She says, he escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious, she's saying, it's obvious how much he loves me. Now these verses are a continuation of where we left off in chapter 1, which has brought her into a feverish desire, peeking out in some very sensual feelings and behavior for him. But we're real not clear on some of the interpretation here. And it's hard to interpret what's, what's being said. So we'll look at them before looking at the general meaning of the passage as a whole. Her love this time has taken the initiative. It might be her imagination. And he's taken her to what's literally called in the Hebrew, the house of wine. And as we see it here, it's called a banqueting hall or a, a banqueting house or a hall. As though a wedding celebration or some religious celebration is what's in mind here. But you see, up to this point, there's been no hint of a formal marriage. Others say this is a tavern or a rural drinking place. But since she's progressed quickly to this sensual behavior in these verses, it doesn't seem right to assume that they're, you know, this is, these are literal places that are mentioned here. Uh, it seems more likely that the lovers are still where we left them in the countryside. Remember in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, where she said we were on a bed of green grass under the fragrant cedar branches and pleasant smelling firs. So it's probably better to connect these verses here, verses 4 through 6, with where we left off in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. She also says in verse 4, notice, his banner over me was love. Now, in the Bible, a banner was used in a lot of different ways, and they all nearly applied to the romantic relationship developing between Solomon and the Shulamite woman. A banner was used as a way of identifying a king's army at wartime. The Shulamite woman had no doubt at all that she belonged to Solomon. She knew that he chose to be identified with her. He wanted to be identified with her. He wanted to have her identified with him. See, their relationship was out in the open. Solomon was not ashamed one bit to let everybody know, hey, this is my love. I am dating this woman. And that's how it should be. I'm hers and she's mine. Now, you shouldn't be ashamed for anyone to know who you're dating. If you have the slightest doubt about what others think, if they knew, you shouldn't be ashamed. You know, seriously question that, that, you know, 
your relationship with this individual. Let me, let me say that again. If you have the slightest doubt about what others think if they knew, seriously question your relationship with this individual. You should be dating somebody who has the full approval of all who truly love you and who want God's best for you. Now, I can hear the, 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 the process going on in the mind. Why should I care what anybody thinks about the person I'm dating? Let me finish the whole section here and then you can evaluate and see what I'm saying. You should be dating someone who has the full approval, again, here it is, of all who truly love you and who want God's best for you. In a book called Preparing for Marriage by William J. McRae, he says, what a help parents can be and must be when their children are contemplating marriage. And then he goes on to tell the story about a young Christian woman who planned to get married. But her parents were so against the marriage that she canceled it. Twice after it was canceled, she went to her mother. She put her arms around her mother and she thanked her mother for being a mean mother. Then she promised her mother, when I get married, I'm going to be a mean mother just like you. She was a wise young lady for listening to her parents. When parents are against a marriage, it could be God's way of keeping a child from a hell on earth. How many times have you heard someone say, I wish I had have listened, or maybe yourself, I wish I had have listened to them at one time. See, parents have life experience. They've been down that long, bumpy road. They've seen and experienced a lot of things in life. So they can offer more, uh, more, obje more they can be more objective. Because they've had the experience. They can see things that you can't. Because you see, when we were younger and for young people, you know, our, our brains, you know, they're running on emotion and not reason. And, and you're not thinking with your brain, but with your heart and your emotions. You're not looking at the red flags or you're not looking for the red flags. And, you know, when, when I used to do a lot of premarital counseling, I would, I would, I would raise these. We used to do a questionnaire. And I, we'd give one to the, 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 the two, the, the, one, the girl and the guy that are getting married. And I, and I told you fill these out <clears throat> at home without your partner looking. And there were questions. You know, what would you, know, what would you I would like for the wife, what would you do if your, says, your husband said, I would like you to stay home when we have a family and raise the kids? And that one question I asked one time, and she goes, oh, no, he would never ask me that. He, he, would, he said that he would want her to. He goes, oh, no, I didn't go to college to get, you know, a degree and to stay home and watch kids. I said, lady, there's a red flag right there. Dude, you better, you know, you better, you better talk this over. You guys, these things here are, see, because when you're, you're going to the altar, you want to get there. You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to say anything. For, but then after the I do's come the I don'ts. <laughs> Or I don't want us. And they go, these are, these are, they seem, they don't seem like they're big deals now, but they will be. And they can get to be. And so it's really important that, that you know, you, 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 you figure these things out and you check these things out before you say, I do. You need to look for the red flags. You need to deal with the red flags. And one of the best reasons to listen to your parents is because usually your welfare is their biggest concern. Or again, if you maybe don't have parents or they're not somebody that you would 
you really talk to, then people that you know who really love you and care about you. Parents' opposition to a marriage could very well be God's way of telling a child to wait. And it could be God's way of saying, hey, it's not on my schedule for you uh, to be married at this time. And there's no better or clearer way to say this than through parents. If it's God's will for a couple to wait, you can be sure there's a wise and good reason for waiting. And it's foolish and it's dangerous to test God's wisdom. The parent's blessing on a marriage is so important before, during, and after the years of marriage. And the happiness of a marriage is deeper and more enjoyable when the parents approve of it. Now, here comes the other point. What if the parents don't approve? Should the child go ahead with the wedding? Well, if the child is living at home, they should get their parents' approval before getting married. But if they don't get their parents' approval, should they go on with their marriage plans? Or should they just forget about it? Well, here's where the Word of God comes in. When the, the scriptures do show us that a person's spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ does supersede natural relationships. Mark 3, 33 through 35 and Luke 14, 26. Discipleship and dedication to Jesus Christ sometimes involves a commitment to him above the commitment to our parents. And whenever a child is tempted to move forward without their parents' approval, they need to be very careful that their reason for doing so is based on their dedication and devotion to Jesus Christ. If a, person's, if a person marries apart from their parents' approval, it could be because there's a higher loyalty to Jesus Christ. And the individual recognizes that it's their faith in Christ that has become a barrier in their relationship to their parents. You know, they, you went off and became a Christian and they weren't happy with that and, and now, you know, they don't want you marrying this person and, and you know, you, you've got, you become, you know, uh, religious fanatics and, and you know, th they're not used to that. They don't like that. In these situations, couples are advised to go ahead with their plans carefully, sympathetically, understandingly, and most of all, prayerfully. You see, there could also be a jealous father and dads are always tough anyway. A selfish mother. A backslidden parent. A lot of other reasons that can become barriers to a Christian wedding. You know, the, maybe the, the man that she wants to marry, he's got a call for the mission field, and he's going to run off to, to Africa to be a missionary, and he's going to take their daughter. It could be dangerous. It could be very difficult. But again, that's the call of God on the man's life she's marrying, and she's going to be a part of that call in his life. And if God has placed that call in their heart, and they're to go, you know what? They have to obey God rather than man, even though that, that man or that woman may be the parent. And so again, you know, we, we have to consider everything you know, and, and, and pray and search the scriptures, and, and then based on my prayer life and the scriptures, uh, I, I make my decision on what I'm going to do. So, uh, again, it, it's tough, and it can be you know, difficult, and, and, but again, uh, through prayer and the, and the reading of the Word of God, um, we can make the decision. Maybe not everybody's going to be happy, but the bottom line is we have to obey God. 
rather than man. Now, this banner of love that she said was over me, a banner was a sign of presence. Some kings had several homes, so they would often use a banner to show which home they were at. And the woman knew that he was with her. She knew in her heart that Solomon was right with the Lord and that their relationship was spiritually healthy. Nothing had been done to defile the purity of their relationship. They were eligible for all of God's blessings. And if we want, if we want to receive God's blessings, we need to be living pure lives, holy lives, obedient lives unto God. We cannot expect the blessings of God if we're living in disobedience and, and, and you know, in, you know, ungodly behavior. Again, I, I always liken it to, to a parent, you know, a good parent. They do not bless their children for disobedience. There's discipline involved. And God is not going to bless us for poor behavior, for disobedience, and, and again, you know, for um, not walking with him. And so she knew that Solomon was right with the Lord. So, and she was, and they were eligible for all of God's blessings. All of this leads to a natural desire. All of, these right, all of this right relationship and doing things right, it leads to a natural desire to give of oneself as your relationship grows in the right direction. The more respect that a person has for another and the more time they spend together, the more desire there is to show that respect and that affection in a physical way. And a part of this desire is definitely a sexual desire. The first sign that that desire of intentional sexual passion is seen here, notice, in verse 5. Notice what verse 5 says. She says, Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. She's saying, I want this man sexually. She was literally lovesick. She was so aroused. She was weak and sick and faint with love and desire for him. She's overwhelmed by his love. Now, don't think of her as being wrong in what she's wanting and what she's thinking. That, that's a natural part of a relationship with somebody that you're truly in love with and they're truly in love with you. She could hardly wait to be intimate with Solomon. She said here, restore my strength with raisin cakes and refresh me with apples. I am weak from passion. That's what she's saying. Look what she says next in verse 6. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. She, she looks forward to the consummation of their marriage. Her eager expectation of having intimacy with Solomon. What she's saying here in verse 6 is she wanted Solomon to cradle her in his arms and caress her. This is what she wants him to do. And as two people date and their relationship heads closer and closer to marriage, their passion should grow naturally. This is God's plan and it's his design. And this is the first of many references here to sexual love in the Song of Solomon. But all of this is happening during the dating period. But their love hasn't yet been fulfilled in marriage, and they haven't been sexually intimate with each other yet. But they're looking, for, looking forward to marriage and being intimate with one another. Now, this is important to know and to keep in mind. The Bible never talks about sex as being good or honorable outside of marriage. Sex outside of marriage is not a part of God's plan for you. 
Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Sex before marriage, no matter the rationale, is wrong in God's eyes. It's sin. No ands, ifs, or buts about it. And, and I remember again when I did premarital uh, counseling, and we would give them the premarital questionnaire. One of the, one of the things on there, was one of the, the questions was, uh, are you having premarital sex? And someone said, yeah, but you were so in love and you were going to get married. And, and, you know, all the rationalizing and all the reasons we really love each other. And, oh, we've known each other for such a long time. And the Bible says you're, you're in sin. You're in sin. Plain and simple. And so we, you know, we, we go on from there. But we make, you know, we'd say, hey, look, if you're serious about this. Then you separate for six months. Oh, well, I can't. It's inconvenient. I go, hey, I'm just telling you what God's word says. You're in sin. You want God's best? You want God's blessings? Then you know what? Follow the word of God. Do what God says for us to do. The Bible calls sexual intercourse out of, out of marriage fornication. That is between, two un, between unmarried. Or adultery, one or both are married. The Bible gives us negative consequences and some of them are severe and some of them are deadly that result from fornication or adultery. All you have to do is look at the case between David and Bathsheba. But the Shulamite here knows that she must wait for the right time. And that's why she admonishes the women from Jerusalem, the daughters of Jerusalem who accompanied her, her, her attendants. She warned them. She says, not to rush into love and marriage, but to wait for the right time. Even Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.8, there is a time to love. She gives this warning again in chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 4. True love is not something we work up. It's something the Lord sends down within us when we meet the right person at the right time. Again, do you find this principle of waiting and having sex only after marriage? Yes. Here in Song of Solomon. Look at verse 7 again. She says to the daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not, notice here it is, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. The meaning of the exhortation is that love can't be forced but must patiently be waited for. In other words, the beloved reminded all of those desiring a relationship like the one she and Solomon had and enjoyed to wait patiently for God to bring it into their lives. The meaning of the gazelles and the does here, they're graceful and swift animals. And it was natural for a beloved one, thinking of the fields and the forest, to make an oath by mountain, uh, by mountain animals. The, the greatest oath was an oath by, uh, made to God or by, uh, to God, but you could also uh, uh, make oath by the, the, the animals of his creation. And that's what she was doing here. Our couple here is well on their way to sexual intimacy. And she wants their love to be consummated, but she's under great pressure because she knows that the time isn't right yet. So she's basically saying to herself, cool it, girl. <laughs> Wait for the right time. 
For the Christian, the right time is always within marriage, never, never, never outside, regardless of the rationalizing you can do. We're really good at rationalizing our own desires. We're good at excusing our own lack of self-control of our bodies and our thoughts. But man, we need to be merciless in this matter, just like Jesus himself taught. If, you know, if what we see, touch, feel, read, or hear causes all kinds of wrong thoughts in our minds, hey, we are to be merciless on ourselves. We are to shut our eyes. We are to stop from touching or reading or whatever, or, or, or watching whatever causes wrong thoughts. Paul said this, he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. The word discipline, it means to hit under the eye. It means to buffet or disable an antagonist as a pugilist. Paul said, I give myself black eyes. He says, I bring my body into subjection. The word into subjection means to be a slave driver. It means to enslave, figuratively to subdue. He said, I, I beat myself into subjection if I need to. I, I enslave my feelings. I enslave the, the, these desires. I, I, I keep them, you know, uh, under control. And again, and that's the other thing that's so important that when, when a couple is dating and, and, and they'd fall many times. Oh, we couldn't help ourselves, you know. And it, well, you know, they were out alone. I say, if you're going to go out, go somewhere that's public, where there's people around. Do something where there's others around. Don't, you know, oh, I mean, we're going to go to her place, or hey, we're going to go to my place. You know what's going to happen. Again, we got to use wisdom. The desires or instincts themselves, they're not wrong. God gave us those desires. God gave us those instincts. What's wrong is when we let those desires run away with us. And take over us, and then we totally go out of control and give in to our desires in ungodly ways. This here is a clear warning, especially to young people. God has given the emotions for sexual intercourse. He created them in us. They're given to us for our pleasure, our happiness, and our good. But they'll only do us good in our life when we fulfill them under the right circumstances that God has ordained. And God's warning is, notice here at the end of verse 7, do not stir up passion until it's right to do so and accompanied by true love and within the union of marriage. Feelings of love can create intimacy that overpowers reason. And young people are often too often in a hurry to develop an intimate relationship that's based on their strong feelings. But again, feelings aren't enough to support a lasting relationship. Hey, feelings come and go. They come and go, and different things create our feelings. Different circumstances create our feelings. And if you're living on feelings, man, that relationship is not going to last. Marriage is not, marriage is not long-term. It doesn't make, make it long-term based on feelings. It's commitment. Commitment. It's not always good feelings. There are tough times. There are difficult situations. But I am committed first to God with the vows I made and I'm committed to my spouse. 
This verse here, verse 7, this verse encourages us not to force romance for the fear that the feelings of love grow faster than the commitment needed to make love last. Patiently wait for feelings of love and commitment to develop together. And you know what? Love does not trespass where law provides. And a lot of times I hear from the young ladies, well, you know, he's pressuring me. You know, he says, if you really love me, you know the rest of that sentence. I say, if he really loves you, he wouldn't be putting this on you. Because true love, agape love, does not trespass where the law says you're not to go there. It's lust, it's not love. It's lust and not love that does that kind of a thing. Love knows how to behave itself, Paul says. Love knows its boundaries. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul said, Love is not rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. Because true love doesn't rob you. It doesn't rip you off. Love gives. Lust takes. Love doesn't eat of the forbidden fruit. Love knows how to wait. It knows how to keep itself pure. Don't, it knows how to keep itself pure. Don't let feelings overpower good judgment. Love knows where to draw the line. Love knows where to recognize the boundaries between right and wrong. Lust will blunder its way. It will bully its way into sin. But love obeys God's laws. I will close with this last scripture reference. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6. For this is the will of God. Notice, this is the will of God. Sanctification. Your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you, notice, should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor and not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. He says, you're acting like a Gentile. You're acting like somebody who don't know God when you don't keep yourself under control. When you don't possess that vessel in sanctification. He said, God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Hebrews tells us to pursue holiness, for without it we shall not see, you know, the Lord. Our salvation hinges upon holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this, what Paul was saying about sanctifying your your, your body... And staying morally pure. God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. Words of wisdom from King of Solomon. The Spirit of God speaking to us. So may we take heed. And again, as we learn, share it with those that... that we need to share it with, with, with you know, our children, you know, young people that you come across. Uh, because, again, it's, it's, it's just as valued today as it was the day it was written. God's standards never change. God's word never changes. We need to change. We need to bring our lives in conformity to the word of God. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, Lord. It truly is a light to our path and a, light, a lamp to our feet, God.
And Lord, sometimes we think that God says these things or writes these laws to keep us from enjoying life. But it's just the opposite. It's to keep us from hurting ourselves and hurting others. And so, Father, may we look to you. May we look to your word, God. May we see the wisdom of your word. The wonder of your word, God. And Father, may we keep our eyes upon your word, upon you, Lord. Father, may you bless your people as they go their way now. May you protect them as they make their way home or wherever their destination might be, God. Bless them. May they have a good week, Lord. And again, may you be uh, at every moment on their thoughts and on their mind, God. We thank you, God, for your love, your grace, and your mercy in our life. We thank you for you and, and for leaving us your word, God, a signpost, a guidepost on the highway of life, God. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.